the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in a study of the Book of Numbers. God had been preparing the Israelites to enter into the land promised to them, the land of Canaan. After many victories and failures, the next generation of Israel was ready. God will lay out the boundaries of the land that they are to own as we join Pastor Will in Numbers chapter 34, verse 1. We're going to come to the end of Israel's journeying with the Lord through the the desert because when Numbers ends, we go to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is really just Moses' final exhortation to the nation. It's a long one. After that, we're going in. This is the end of their journey to the promised land. We've been journeying with the Lord with them in the sense that our own journey with the Lord. In that, I trust the Lord's been blessing you. But as we look here at these last few chapters, we, we have to consider the fact that children flourish when they have clearly defined boundaries. Like everyone that studies kids, they, they come to that, whether secular or Christian, whatever, they come to that conclusion. Children flourish when they have clearly defined boundaries. To be a functioning adult, you must learn to live within boundaries. I appreciate that my home is my home and that other people aren't allowed to wander in whenever they please. I appreciate boundaries. I also appreciate that God sets boundaries for me. He tells me what's right and he tells me what's wrong. He tells me what he's like, he tells me what he's not like. And while these chapters at face value, when you just read through them, might seem like a geography lesson or a legal statement. It communicates the importance of this principle, that boundaries are important. So chapter 34, we'll begin there. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel and say unto them, When you come into the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall unto you for inheritance, even the land of Canaan with the coasts thereof. I love this here because the Lord starts off by saying, when you come into the land of Canaan, not if, the Lord's promises are sure. If he says, this is what I'm gonna do, you can count on the fact that he will do it. It's in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 that says that all the promises of God are yes and amen. For all the promises of God in him are yes and in him amen unto the glory of God by us. All the promises of God are yes and amen. Yes, it is truth. Yes, it's going to happen. I love that the Lord starts off and he says, when you come into the land, and then he explains, this is the land that shall fall unto you for an inheritance, even the land of Canaan with the coast thereof. We think of a coast, we think of a coastline, but the word coast here means borders or boundaries. He's saying, I'm going to now tell you all the land that is yours that I'm giving to you, and here's its boundaries. In other words, Israel doesn't get to settle and conquer wherever they want. They don't just have carte blanche where they can just go and fight anybody and settle there. God didn't promise the world to them. It was a well-defined place. And so we're going to look at the borders that God grants to the nation of Israel. It's going to be interesting because the borders that Israel experienced throughout much of their history were not these borders. They never really expanded to the fullness of what God had for them. He says, then your south quarter, so the southern border, shall be from the wilderness of Zin along by the coast of Edom, along the coast of Eden, and your south border shall be the outmost coast of the salt sea eastward. Now, the wilderness of Zin is right down there 
It's that whole deserted region in the south part of Israel. So he's saying here that uninhabited region that's now desert, southwest of the Dead Sea. And he he starts off by explaining that your south border shall be the outmost coast or the end of the border of Edom, he says there, of the Salt Sea eastward. The general south border is from the bottom of the Dead Sea. We're going to come down here. We're going to take a path through what's called the ascent of Akarim, and then we're going to move this way and go up that way. So that's the southern border of Israel. He says, and your border shall turn from the south. That's from the Dead Sea right there. You're going to go down this way, and we're going to go through a a pass or a a wadi. It says it'll turn to the ascent of Akrabim. That means the path of the scorpion. It's a long valley that stretches southwest of the Dead Sea. It's a natural border. That is where you'll go, and it will pass on to Zin, or literally it will pass through. So the scorpion path leads through here until it empties out into the wilderness or that deserted region of Zin. And the goings forth thereof shall be from the south to Kadesh Barnea. So you're going through this desert, which is nothing. And then you come to Kadesh Barnea, which is really the tip of the southern border of the promised land for Israel. That's when you cross into there, you start seeing people now because it's not deserted. And you shall go from there to Hazan Adar and pass on to Asmon. And these are just cities. We don't know exactly where they were, but they're traveling just further west along the southern border. And then verse five tells where it ends. And the border shall, I love the King James says, fetch a compass, which just means turn around. So it's been going down and west. Now we're going to curl up is what that's saying. So it's going to turn around. You're going to be in the curl up unto the river of Egypt and the goings out of it shall be to the sea. Now, normally we think of the river in Egypt as what? The Nile, but that's not what it's talking about here. And that's not what it meant back then. The Nile was never called the river of Egypt. We just think that because we're Americans. So there was this area here. We don't know which one it is. There's one that goes right here and there's one that goes right here. And we don't know which one it is, but one of those was considered the river of Egypt. It says until it, it shall be at the sea. Now, whenever you use the phrase the sea, it's always the Mediterranean Sea. They don't call it anything else. That's the western border, verse 6. And as for the western border, you shall even have the great sea for a border. This shall be your west border. Verse 7, now the northern border, and this shall be your north border. From the great sea shall point out for you Mount Hor. So you go all up along the sea until you get to a place called Mount Hor. That can be confusing because Mount Hor is the mountain where Aaron died, and that's way down here. That is not obviously what we're referring to because that's south, not north. It's not the same mountain Aaron died on. We don't know for sure which mountain this is here in the north. Literally, that entire region is hilly. When we go to Israel, our first trip will be through that northern area. And I mean, all you're going to see is rocky hills all over the place. We don't know which one it is, but that marked the point where they're going to start going across the north. Next, it mentions, it says, from there at Mount Or, you shall point, verse 8, out your border unto the entrance of Hamath. Now that we will not go to when we go to Israel, because that's not even in modern day Lebanon, that's in modern day Syria, north of Lebanon. It's way north of Lebanon. So what's interesting about that is That means Israel's God-given border is far north of where their current modern-day border is. If you look at Israel's history, Hamath, which is way up here, they never got there except in Solomon's day. And even, really, I don't think they got that far. There's some debate on how far their authority really stretched. But I don't really think they ever got entirely that far. God gave them way more land than that they ever have inhabited. God promised they would, which means Israel is going to expand. I don't know if they'll expand in our lifetime or before the tribulation period, but they will eventually expand, even if it doesn't happen till the millennium. 
Now from Hamath, from there you start kind of moving down to this place called Zedad. The goings forth of the border shall be to Zedad, and the border shall go on to Ziphron, and the goings out of it shall be at Hazar Enan. This shall be our north border. All these cities are about 60 to 80 miles north of Damascus. They're pretty close to each other. Again, Israel's God-given northern borders were well beyond what they normally or usually possessed. So now we've come around from here all the way up, verse 10. And you shall point out your east border from Hazar Enan to Shephem. So Shephem is just that northeastern border right around here, and then we're going to start moving down. And so the coast shall go down from Shepham to Ribla. Ribla is about 40 miles north of Damascus on the east side. It says here on the east side of Ain. Ain is just like a, a natural spring. We don't know where it is because there's tons of them there. But we're just making our way down there. We're heading towards Damascus and, and squeezing the width of the nation a little bit here. Ribla is Interesting because it actually does come into Scripture quite a bit. That's where King Nebuchadnezzar captured and took King Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, killed his sons in front of his eyes, and then put out his eyes, and then took him in chains to Babylon. From there, it says, The border shall descend and shall reach unto the side of the sea of Chinnereth, or Kinnereth, eastward. Uh, that's just another name for the Sea of Galilee. Then we get to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, which is land that's probably much more familiar to you if you've looked at Bible maps before. And then from the Sea of Galilee, or Kinnereth, it says the border shall go down to Jordan. So the Jordan River, which the Jordan River comes down from Mount Hermon, which is right around here, and it just, all the springs feed into here, and that's the border, is just the Jordan River. It separates what we call the Transjordan and then the West Bank. So that's going to be their border, will be the Jordan. In verse 12, it goes all the way, the goings out of it, the border will end at the Salt Sea, or the Dead Sea, we call it today. This shall be your land with the coasts thereof round about. So this was the end of the borders, the limits of the borders that God had given to Israel. And so Moses commanded the children of Israel, verse 13, saying, this is the land which you shall inherit by lot, which the Lord commanded to give unto the nine tribes and to the half tribe. Why are two and a half tribes missing? Verse 14, for the tribe of the children of Reuben, according to the house of their fathers, and the tribe of the children of Gad, according to the houses of their fathers, they have received their inheritance, and half the tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance. The two tribes and the half tribe, they have received their inheritance already on this side, Jordan, near Jericho, toward the sun rising, which means toward the east. And remember, it says in verse 13, they will be given their plot of land to settle in by lot. So nobody, none of them know which part they're going to get yet. Verse 16 and 17 shows who's going to be in charge of making sure that the drawing, it's like a raffle, basically, kind of like you're on the prices, right? What was that show? No whammies, no whammies. Don't put me by the, you know, the south and the desert. That's where Judah got. Well, it says, the Lord spoken to Moses saying, these are the names of the men which shall divide the land unto you. Two guys. So it's never a one person deal. Eliezer, he'll be the high priest and Joshua, the son of None. So there are two authority figures or two leaders uh, will be in charge of distributing the land, overseeing the drawing for who will get what part of the land once they conquer it. Now it mentions here, and verse 18, you shall take one prince of every tribe to divide the land by inheritance. So all of the tribes will participate in the drawing through the leaders that we see God pick right here. You know, as we read through this list, it's very reminiscent of the leaders that God chose in Numbers 1 to represent each tribe. I mean, that's where we started this book. We started with God picking leaders who would be in charge of the nation, and then we counted the nation, and then they had this parade, you know, where they brought these offerings to the Lord, and it was this huge, big thing. Well, the book of Numbers ends the same way because that first generation failed. 
So it, we're, it's like the do-over. We're starting over here. And again, this is just another signal that God is treating this generation like they were the ones who came out of Egypt. It's, it's interesting because that's what the book of Micah says the Lord does with our sins. In Micah chapter 7, the very last few verses, 18 and 19, I'm in the Minor Prophets right now in my devotion, so I'm finding all these cool things in them that just are ministering to me. But Micah, who blown away by just God's plan, even though things are bad right now. I mean, things are really bad in Israel. Judgment's coming, and he sees no way out of it, but he's trusting the Lord. But why he's trusting the Lord is because of the Lord's character. Look at what he says in verse 18 of Micah 7. For who is a God like unto you? That's a great question. But he explains why there's nobody like our God. He explains that pardons iniquity and passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. Why is our God different? He is so merciful. He is ready to pardon even when we're in our worst place. Right now, that northern kingdom is in the worst place it could possibly be. But the Lord wants to forgive. He wants to pardon. He says he retains not his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Aren't you glad that God doesn't retain his anger forever? He will turn again. In other words, he'll turn back to us and he will have compassion upon us. I mean, he's looking at this through the eyes of God, not looking through it through the eyes of the mess they're in right now. God's going to turn around. He's not going to be angry at us forever. He's going to have compassion on us. And you know what? He'll subdue our iniquities. I love that phrase. He will conquer our iniquities. He's bigger than my sin. He's bigger than my struggles. And you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Hmm. Our God is a good God. Now, here we see listed the representatives from every tribe. You should recognize at least one of them. It says, and you shall take one prince of every tribe to divide the land by inheritance. And the names, verse 19 of Numbers 34, of the men are these, of the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. Of the tribe of the children of Simeon, Shemuel, the son of Amihud. Of the tribe of Benjamin, Eladad, the son of Chislon. And the prince of the tribe of the children of Dan is Buki, the son of Jogli. The prince, I almost named a, a kid Jogli. No, I didn't. The prince of the children of Joseph, now we got two sons, so for the tribe of the children of Manasseh is Haniel, the son of Ephod. I don't know why you'd name your kid after a belt or underwear. Ephod can also refer to underwear. I, I would not do that. And the prince of the tribe of the children of Ephraim was Kemuel, the son of Shiftan, much better name. And the prince of the tribe of the children of Zebulun was Eliz Afan, the, uh, the son of Parnak. And the prince of the tribe of the children of Issachar was Paltiel, the son of Azan. And the prince of the tribe of the children of Asher was Ahihud, the son of Shelomi. And the prince of the tribe of the children of Naphtali was Pedahel, the son of Amihud. Now, again, only nine and a half, so it's only 10 people here. These are they whom the Lord commanded to divide the inheritance of the children, unto the children of Israel in the land of Canaan. What's interesting is while Caleb does play an important role later in the Bible, these other guys are never mentioned in the scriptures again. But what is important about them is that even though we don't know what was special about them, why God picked them to be leaders, the Lord knew. He knew them, and he's the one who picked them. And that means that God knows your name too, even if nobody else does. He knows your name, and he has picked you for the tasks he's called you to do. Take comfort and do what it is he's calling you to do. There is one gaping hole in chapter 34. There's one huge group of people who are left out, the Levites. Where is that tribe going to live? Well, chapter 35 covers that. So chapter 35 says, And the Lord spoke unto Moses in the plains of Moab by Jordan near Jericho, saying, Command the children of Israel that they give unto the Levites of the inheritance of their possession. So this comes out of each of the places they'll settle. Each of the tribes and the places that they get by lot that they're going to settle, they have to give a part of that to the Levites to live in, to dwell in. And not just, not just cities, 
but it says you shall give also unto the Levites suburbs for those cities around them. Now, the word suburbs here just means pasture land or open land. So from your inheritance, you're going to have to pick some cities and some surrounding land, pasture land around those cities to give them to the Levites. For it says, and the cities shall they have to live in. They'll live in the cities. Their suburbs of them shall be for their cattle, for their goods. That's just another word used for a different kind of animal in this place. And for all their beasts. So the pasture land is for their livestock. The cities are for them to live in. Now, how much land are they to be given? Well, verse four, and the suburbs of the cities, which you shall give unto the Levites, they shall reach from the wall of the city and outward a thousand cubits round about. That's about a half a mile, maybe a little bit more than that. And after you measure that, you're going to measure again, verse five, you're going to measure from that point from outside the city of the east side, 2,000 cubits, and on the south side, 2,000 cubits, and on the west side, 2,000 cubits, and on the north side, 2,000 cubits, and this city shall be in the midst, this shall be to them the suburbs of the cities. It can be confusing when you look at this and go, why is he saying 1,000 and 2,000? I don't know why God worded it that way, but the idea is that it appears God is trying to protect the Levites from being crammed into these cities by only giving them a half mile around their city for their flocks. So he says, you're going to have a buffer area of a half mile, and then after that, you've got almost a mile. So the idea is it's about a mile and a half of of land and it's going to be in each direction so they got room to breathe. Now the Levites are to be given 48 cities in total, but six of those cities are special. Look at verse six. And among the cities which he shall give unto the Levites, there shall be six cities for refuge. The word refuge means a safe haven or an asylum. It's a place that someone would flee to. And that's what it says here. He says, which these six cities, which you shall appoint for the manslayer that he may flee there. And to them, you shall add 40 in two cities. So 48 cities total, but six of them are special because this is where the manslayer will have to come to for safety. Now the word manslayer just means someone who's killed a person, whether it's accidentally or on purpose, you're a manslayer. You have to flee to the city for safety. Back then, and still today in much of Middle Eastern culture, if I kill a family, your family member, you are duty bound to kill me. And it's the Hatfield McCoy's all over the place. And that's just how it goes. So that was that culture back then. They didn't look at things that way. They learned it from Egypt. I'll get into that in a moment. But this idea of revenge killing, which is not something we usually see in our culture, the idea of revenge killing was very much ingrained into Israeli society at this time from what they learned in Egypt. Egypt was big on revenge killing. The idea here of a manslayer, you might be saying, well, why would you want to harbor a killer? If it, he did it on purpose, why, why not just deal with him? Well, what if it was an accident? Or what if they didn't do it? What if they're innocent? Doesn't that person get a chance to prove they're innocent? And the answer is yes. That person could flee to the city and get a fair trial is the idea. You might be saying, okay, what's this idea of revenge killing though? Why didn't God just stop it? Why did God allow them to do it? Well, the truth is God eventually did stop it. Turn to Matthew chapter five. Matthew five thirty-eight in the Sermon on the Mount. It says, you have heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue you at the law and take away your coat, let him have your cloak also. And whosoever shall compel you to go a mile, go with him too. Give to him that asks you, and from him that would borrow of you, do not turn them away. You have heard that it has been said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. Why? 
so you can be like him, that you may be the children, the sons and the daughters of your Father which is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the publicans, the sinners, do the same thing? And if you salute your brethren only, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the publicans so? Therefore be perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Eventually the Lord does say that this is not going to be tolerated. You'll never do this. Well, why would God allow it back then? First off, God allowing something doesn't mean he endorses it. There are quite a few things that God allowed in the Old Testament that we see in the New Testament that Jesus will say, yeah, but that's not God's intent. It was not his setup from the beginning, and I'm reestablishing what God wants. Many things. Why? Why? What's different from us today and the Old Testament believers? What's different? Well, there's a huge difference. It's interesting when Jesus was dealing with one of these issues that God, for example, God permitted under the law that divorce under very narrow circumstances could occur. He permitted it, but that was not his will. Later on in Malachi, he says he hates divorce. His desire is that one man, one woman for life. That's what God wants. That's the only plan God has. There is no alternative plan. When the New Testament came about, the people challenged Jesus on this. And when Jesus explained what God's standard was, they said, well, why did Moses allow us to do this? You're contradicting Moses. And Jesus goes, hold on a second. No, no, no. Moses permitted it because of the hardness of your hearts. But I stand you, which he's saying, but now that's going to change. He did that with quite a few things. We read about the other one, and you have heard it said, an eye for an eye. Uh-uh, not anymore. What is that about? Well, see, the difference between here and then is not the hardness of our hearts. It's not like man doesn't have hard hearts anymore. The difference is that before Jesus, the Holy Spirit didn't dwell in a person to empower them to live differently. God permitted a second best solution. He curtailed those practices. But now, the Bible says he commands all men everywhere to repent. There are no permissions now. The Lord says, this is my will. This is what I want you to do. There is no okay with these things. In the Old Testament, we will see some of those laws that were permitted, but that is not part of God's plan. It's not what he wanted, nor is it part of his will. If you want to find out about revenge, you can't go to the Old Testament. I mean, you can see parts of the Old Testament where God's heart comes through, of course, but you can't go to the law of Moses. If you want to understand marriage and divorce, you can't go to the Old Testament law. If you want to understand about how to deal with mom and dad, about how to deal with other things, you can't go to that. Like, you know, parents aren't supposed to stone their kids when they disobey anymore. We, we can't yet. Some of you are like, why not? <laughs> we, go to, we go to before the law of Moses, where God established it down and laid it down how it's supposed to be. Now, the rest of the cities would be normal ones. So verse 7, so all the cities you shall give to the Levites shall be 40 and 8 cities. Them shall you give with their suburbs. And the cities which ye shall give shall be of the possession of the children of Israel. From them that have many you shall give many. So in other words, if you get a big chunk of land, you've got to give more cities to the Levites from the tribe that's smaller and doesn't get as much land. But from them that have few, you shall give few. Everyone shall give of his cities unto the Levites according to his inheritance, which he inherited. They would be spread out amongst all the people. And the reason that God did that was because, remember, he chose them. Their job is to teach the Bible, the law, at that time, only the law, to teach that to the people and then to serve and assist in the tabernacle worship. That's what their job was. So they'd be spread out amongst all the people of Israel. While God had every intention of protecting the innocent from revenge killing, he was not offering a safe haven for murderers, though. So he gives a deeper explanation of how these cities of refuge work. Verse 9. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When you become over Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall appoint you cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the slayer may flee thither, which kills any person, note, 
at unawares, which means inadvertently, unintentionally, accidentally, okay? So if you did it on purpose, you can flee to the city of refuge, but you're going to die. You're going to get the death sentence. Verse 12, and they shall be unto you cities of refuge from the avenger, okay? Now, the avenger is the family member who's supposed to take revenge, that the manslayer die not until he stand before the congregation in judgment until he gets his trial, until he gets his day in court. Now, what's interesting about this word avenger, very interesting, because it's the word goel. Well, you say, what does that mean? Well, the goel was the kinsman redeemer. We use the book of Ruth to show how it paints a picture of how Jesus is our kinsman redeemer, right? He became a man so that we could be redeemed, right? This same word is used here for the avenger. Just as Jesus fulfills our role of kinsman redeemer by purchasing our freedom from sin because he's our near kinsman, he also fulfills this role when he brings justice upon the wicked who oppress mankind. He's going to be our redeemer in that way too, where he's going to rescue us and this world from the mess it's in. Jesus is our redeemer, our avenger. We don't need to go after revenge nor to attempt avenging ourselves. God is a great defender and refuge for all his people. We can trust his character. We can trust that he is who he says he is. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.